I spent a lot more time doing customer research and actually getting on phone calls or Zoom calls with people and just figuring out what is it that they actually struggled with. So for the healthy eating side of things, people said that it was cravings that they had issues with. And I thought they just needed more recipes or more generic advice. And when I realized, oh, cravings, yeah, I can relate to that. I made a course all about cravings and that is what really started selling. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That Worked. We have a great episode this week. I'm joined by Natalie Lucier. Natalie is the founder of Axis Ally. Axis Ally is a digital course and membership solution for industry leaders. She believes that access to education can help defy stereotypes and make the world a better place while providing a sustainable livelihood for enterprising teachers. Natalie is an award-winning entrepreneur who has been making websites since she was 12 years old. She has been featured in Forbes, Inc., Fast Company, Success Magazine, Entrepreneur, VentureBeat, and Mashable. And I got to tell you, I learned so much from this interview. It took me longer to edit the episode because I kept going back and taking notes. Some of the things that we talked about were building a cohort-based course and a digital course, which order to build that in. If you're creating content at all, you're probably familiar with those. It's a really interesting way, whether that's your full-time role, if you're trying to do one of these on the side, it was super, super interesting. We talked a bit about transitioning from a service-based business to a SaaS business. And a lot of people that have service-based businesses have interest in a SaaS business. And Natalie talked a lot about how she did that. And I thought it was really interesting. We talked about Natalie building a business with her spouse. And in particular, I know a lot of people are, are interested in this. She gave great guidelines on what needs to really be there for this to be successful. And the part of the conversation that I really love the most was talking about growing a bootstrapped SaaS business. If you're unfamiliar with the term, bootstrap just means that you're not taking on outside investment. You're growing from your own capital that you have, the cash or money that you've saved up, as well as the revenue of the business. And the goal is really to get to cash flow positive or have enough revenue to cover your expenses as fast as possible. And you don't hear about this all that much for SaaS businesses. You hear that quite often for service businesses. So it was great getting her take, the pros, the cons, what to be prepared for. It was a great conversation and, and I really learned a lot. So with that, I'm done wasting your time. Let's get into the show. All right, Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm excited to have you here because, well, we're going to get into it, but I love what you did. You started a service business and then converted that into a software company. So that's something I'm personally interested and excited about. But before there, where I'd love to kick this off is tell us about how you got your husband to quit his job. <laughs> 
Yes. So he was working as a management consultant in New York City, crazy hours, you know, commuting and traveling a lot. And my business was at a point where it was basically just myself and assistant, and we were making a good amount of money in my company. And I was like, come on, quit your job, join me in the business. It'll be great. We can work together. I had all of these things, you know, in my mind of what it could look like. And he was super resistant. He did not want to quit his job. He definitely had this mindset that, you know, he had to be the provider and he was on his own career trajectory. And all it took really was him realizing he could play video games during the day for a while (laughs) for him him to say, yes, I am going to quit my job. And oddly enough, after he quit, he played video games for a while. Um, His job offered him a contract which paid even more than what he was being paid originally. And I was like, what? This is even crazier. (laughs) So uh, really listening to your wife is the moral of the story here. (laughs) Makes sense. Makes total sense. I mean, I get it. If you could say, oh, wait, I can get a few more hours of video games in per day. No brainer. It's an absolute (laughs) no brainer. So I, I got a couple of questions even from that is tell us a little bit about the first business that you had started. Yeah. So I started my very, very first online business in the healthy eating space. And that was just a passion of mine, you know, eating well. And everywhere I read blogs said, you know, start a business about your passion. And so I did that. And I call it my training business because that's where I learned how to do marketing, how to do email building and website, you know, everything, all the stuff that ended up being a really important part of my business and my growth. And I realized, you know, I was passionate about the topic, but I wasn't certified in, you know, nutrition or any of that stuff. And I knew if I wanted to go down this path, I would probably have to go back to school or do something to really up my skills in that area. And talking about, you know, smoothies was probably not going to be enough forever. So I decided to pivot back into tech where, you know, I had a degree in software engineering and I said, okay, well, people keep asking who built my website and if they could hire me to do that. And so I pivoted into web design and then eventually that turned into more consulting on the marketing side. And that is the real business that took off for me. Was more of that consulting on the marketing side. And you started out in this healthy eating blog. So here, I'm, here's one thing I'm curious about. What year was this? So that was 2008. So I graduated in 2008 and I had a job offer on Wall Street for a tech job. And I turned it down to start that business because, you know, I had read a lot of stuff about the four hour work week and all of these alternative to traditional career paths. And I was like, I'm going to start a business. And I knew like I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage. This was kind of the time for me to try it. And so that's what I did. That's when I started at that time. And 2010, 2011 is when I pivoted into the web design side of things. And that's when things really started to take off in my business. One of the things I'm curious about was, so 2008, and you essentially were going this, what's now called the content creator, but it doesn't really, it really wasn't called that at that point. What was it about that that kind of attracted to you? And then as a follow-up to that, what principles from doing that help you in your business today? Yeah. So I had always enjoyed writing. You know, I used to write poetry and things like that. So I think the blogging aspect of writing more, I'm an introvert. You know, I knew like sitting at a desk writing and coming up with ideas is something that I would enjoy. And I did have a YouTube channel back in the day too, you know, with smoothie recipes and all kinds of things. And yeah, I feel like that was really early days for sure in so many ways. So it was just a lot of trial and error. There weren't 
recommendations for how to be a content creator and how to make money with that. So a lot of it was trying to figure it out and make it more of a business. So that's when I ended up pivoting because I realized like content in this space was not necessarily enough. I had to have online courses. I had to have actual membership type things that I could offer people. And so that's where I learned all of those things. And I realized how I could help other people with that too. And some of the things that have taught me, you know, those early on days is really about understanding your audience. And I think that that is something we still use a lot in our business today. So just understanding what people are looking for, what they're struggling with, and not making assumptions. Because back in the day, I made so many assumptions about what people wanted from me in terms of content and solutions. And I think that when you're actually talking to people, you get way better answers than just thinking through, like I said, by yourself and you're at home on your computer, you're not going to get those answers that you're looking for. Yeah, 100%. Where did you even get information about doing a lot of this at that point? Yeah. So back in the day, it was pretty much just blogs. Yes, there was YouTube and and other things. So there were a couple of things and resources. And I would say there were definitely some pioneers. So, you know, there was copy blogger. There were a couple of people who were already kind of on the content side um, teaching that. There was Blog World Expo, which I ended up speaking at a few times later on. And there were a couple of those pioneers in this space, but definitely it was the Wild West, right? We were all trying to figure out how to monetize, how to make this into a business. And I definitely learned that just blogging and trying to rely on ads was not going to be enough. So that's when I ended up creating online courses and memberships. And that helped really set the course for where my business is today. And that's really interesting. So if I'm hearing you, it's learned a lot about blogging. Great. That impacted how you market your business today. But what you found was it's like, I'm really dependent on ads. You've got to get a lot of people as my guess in order to be able to sell those ads. And that's hard because that can be up and down and you're still at the mercy of some sort of change and uh, whatever that may be. And then you started doing the online courses. Tell us a little bit about that. How does one go about creating a successful online course? Because it sounds great and it's something I'm exploring as well. So I'm actually genuinely curious. Yeah. So I've learned a lot about how to do it the right way and not the wrong way by you know trial and error in those early years. And I think the main thing is to make sure that you have the right topic that you are actually answering somebody's problem or solving an issue that they actually have. And also making sure that what you name your course really, really resonates because the name actually is probably like 80% of, of what will get people to say yes. Obviously, the rest of the copy and your videos and your content, and all of that is super important too. But if they don't understand immediately who it's for and what it's going to help them solve, then it's unlikely that they're going to keep reading enough to say, yes, I want this. So that's from the marketing side of your course. But in terms of actually creating a course, I highly recommend pre-selling a course because what you're going to find is that when you have people enrolled in your course, then you can actually create the course that's going to help them. Because a lot of times if you are just making assumptions or going off of what you think they need, you might be completely off the mark. And if you have a group of people and you're teaching live and facilitating live, you're going to get the types of questions that help you create the next module or the next piece of content that you might not have if you're pre-planning everything ahead of time. So I would say pre-selling is the magic sauce of doing an online course really well. And you can do it in a cohort-based way. So you say, maybe I want 10 people in this first round or whatever number it comes to you. And then from there, you know, you actually teach live. You can have an outline in a curriculum, but by teaching live, you're actually going to get 
feedback. You're going to find out if you're going in the right direction. People might say, yes, yes, this is great, but here's where I really want to spend more time. And that will help you make the better course. And then you can always come back, re-record or make it more polished um, if you're doing video, for example, but at least you know you're on the right track and you're not building something that people are not going to want. So if I'm hearing you then, it's don't build the course until you pre-sell it. Make sure it's something that people actually are willing to pay for. And because my guess is you would just put a ton of time into that and then have no sales whatsoever. Is that right? Am I on the right page there? Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen people go through this and I've done this the very first course that I launched exactly that's what happened. You know, I opened the doors and I got zero signups and it was a lot of things. It was the name of the course. People didn't think it applied to them. Um, it wasn't what they actually wanted <laughs> for the course. And then I knew that the content was still going to be good. So what I did is I spent a lot more time doing customer research and actually getting on phone calls or Zoom calls with people and just figuring out what is it that they actually struggled with? So for the healthy eating side of things, people said that it was cravings that they had issues with. And I thought they just needed more recipes or more generic advice. And when I realized, oh, cravings, yeah, I can relate to that. I made a course all about cravings and that is what really started selling. So uh, just being able to get more specific and a lot of it was similar strategies. Once you start eating healthy, the cravings go away, but you can't just say that, right? You have to kind of connect <laughs> with where people are right now. They're feeling the cravings are the hardest part. When you're able to connect to what people actually want and need help with, you're able to create a much better course. And then, yeah, like when I relaunched, I basically had 30 people sign up for that course and versus zero. <laughs> so all of these pieces had to come together and I had to do the legwork of talking to them and making sure that I understood what they needed. I can empathize with that cravings part. I could eat healthy for like three days in a row, but if you put Sour Patch Kids or Kane's Chicken in front of me, just forget it. I, I am I am off the wagon immediately. Yes. I've got a follow-up question on that. With the pre-sell, do you have to have a pre-established audience for that? Meaning, all right, so if I'm coming off the street and I have no social media following, no email list, no blog that's out there, can I go one by one going to people and trying to sell this course? Or is it much better to build an audience, build a following, and then shoot out an email or make a post about it or something like that? What does that look like? I mean, it's definitely better if you have an audience because you can actually survey them and do all the customer research that is going to help you design the course for them. But you can definitely start without an audience if you have access to people who you think are your ideal people to talk to. And you can sell it one-on-one. -on -one. I've definitely had people pre-sell one-on-one saying, hey, I'm doing a course, you know, a couple months from now. This is the topic. This is what I'm thinking. Is this something you'd be interested in? I've had people do it as a freebie. So just to get feedback and make sure it's something that people want. I still recommend charging at least a little something because people... They might be really nice and want to say yes, but if they don't really care enough to put down some money for it, then they might not show up. They might not give you any feedback. So it's not really the best use of your time or their time. But the cool thing is when you're doing a pre-sale, you can actually generate a lot of buzz too, because that can be part of your marketing, right? So you can have a couple of people registered. And then when you know that you're starting up the course, you maybe give yourself a few weeks to really post on social media and build that interest list on your email list so that people are ready to sign up when you open up enrollment. So I do recommend doing it that way. So even if they don't sign up the first round, at least you have people to market to the next time you reopen and rerun the course. 
So you mentioned a couple things too. I, sorry, I know I'm going in on this one deep, but it's I have a ton of questions on here because this is definitely something I'm personally interested in. You mentioned this a little bit, but is it cohort based in, you know, I'm taking 30 people on and this is going to be a live course, or is it better to, I've got a $40,000 digital course, come and get it essentially, whenever it is that's convenient for you. What do you recommend for, let's say that first course, someone that's like, I want to do this, I'm committed to doing this. What is kind of the ideal way to start it? Yeah, so this is the age-old question of evergreen versus a launch or cohort-based style. And I think that evergreen is better later on once you have something that's established, once you have tons of testimonials, once you have people just coming to your website, you have traffic warmed up and just ready to sign up and buy. There are benefits to having an evergreen program that people can buy anytime because if they just find you and you're solving the exact problem that they need, they are not going to wait for the next time that you run a cohort-based course. So you want to have that available. But the first time you're creating your course, it's not the right time to make it available forever. You want that cohort-based, that energy behind it, teaching it live, having people connect to each other and communicate as a community too, because that also tends to be a really big benefit to online courses because people who are in a similar space are trying to achieve similar things or solve similar problems. They're going to cheer each other on. They're going to maybe help each other along. And that's an extra bonus of an online course. It's not just the course content itself. So I feel like doing it cohort-based is better. And also there's some real scarcity there, right? So you're not doing fake marketing, like discount for one day only, and then you come back the next day and there's discount for another day, right? So you have a real start date and end date for the program. And so that gets people who might be on the fence to say, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try this. And everyone's busy. Everyone has an excuse not to sign up. So if you have something that's actually happening, starting live, then people are more likely to actually do it. So I guess I'll use myself as a guinea pig example on here. If you were to coach me and I said, so I've got a fairly engaged LinkedIn following. I have the podcast, the newsletter, and I have the consulting business in general. One of the things that I was thinking about is creating a cohort based on here's your foundational sales team. Um, Here's what it looks like. Here's the systems that you should be using and everything else. Should I be going back as I'm talking about this out loud after what you said, I'm assuming I should be going back. Do I go to, I guess the question would be is, is that a LinkedIn post that I put out there to say, would this be interesting? Is it a question in a newsletter? Do I ask potentially the people in my pipeline that did not close to say almost, you know, if I offered this, would this be something that you're interested in? What would you recommend in that scenario? I want to say all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think it's really important to build an interest list, like a separate part of your email list where people kind of have raised their hand and said, this is a topic or a type of course that I would be interested in signing up for. And especially if you have potentially corporate or more business B2B type audience, um, it's really nice to start building that because you can also send them tips and other things to kind of warm them up before you open enrollment for your course. So it's really nice to start building that interest list. And like I said, sometimes people might not be ready to buy right away, but if you're on that sub list, you can actually follow up and the next time you open a cohort version, then they're more likely to say yes. And some people tend to be like, I need to watch a little bit on the sidelines before they're really ready to dive in. And other people are super early birds, ready to go from day one. Um, so yeah, I would do that a separate list 
post on LinkedIn, talk about it on the, you know, the podcast, uh, maybe get people who said no to other, other services or other offerings to maybe see if it's something that would benefit them for sure. I love that. That makes so much sense. So you grew this consulting company. When was it that you made the change to start building software? Yeah. So we, you know, I had this online course business. I was doing consulting and I launched something called the 30 day list building challenge. And it was a quick video a day for 30 days. And the email platform would send the emails and then our members area would have the video. And the plugin that we were using at the time was just really not built for this. It was glitchy. And so every time we had a thousand people go and check out the video for the day, our site would crash and our web host would shut us down. And I had to call them. And it was such a pain that I was like, you know what, let's just write our own. Like I don't need to use the plugin on WordPress that we were using. So um, my husband and I just like coded this up in a weekend. It was very bare bones. It just did the one thing. And uh, we were like, oh, wow. Okay, well, we built our own. What else could we do in our members area to make this more interesting? So we added progress tracking checklists and we started adding a little bit more to the the members area to make it just more user-friendly and just fun to go through the challenge. And people started asking us, you know, what plugin are you using? What platform are you using to run your course and your challenge? And that's when the light bulb went off where I was like, oh, yes, actually, this could be its own product. And this could be a thing that we actually sell and it could be a whole business pretty much. And before we launched that, because we knew that that this is what became Access Ally, we knew that we had to kind of test the waters and see if we were able to support software because maybe support would be insane and we wouldn't be able to handle it. So we built another small plugin called Pop-Up Ally. And it was just a very simple pop-up tool for WordPress. And we launched that first. It was a smaller thing. We figured it'd be easier to support and market. So we did that. That was about 2013, 2014. And uh, we released it. It did really well. It surpassed our expectations. Support was handleable between just my husband and I and another assistant. And we said, okay, yeah, let's go all in on the software side. I think that we can actually do this. And it was in 2016 is when I had my first baby. So we knew going in that me being a consultant and being on calls all the time and doing a lot of courses and live events and things wasn't going to be sustainable once we had kids. So we knew if we focused in on the software, really built that up, that I could sort of transition out of more of the public facing and just focus more on building the software. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you built the consulting company up, you built a community from this consulting company. And in the software and tools that you were using, you started to get really high traffic, in particular with these videos. And every time they went to the video, it crashed. So you guys had this really big problem where it's people want our content, people are engaged in our community, but now our tools are failing us and we can't deliver them the value that we've promised them. Is that, am I hearing that correctly? Exactly. And I had paid courses alongside with this free challenge and people who had paid for courses couldn't log in because the website was down. So it was a huge, that was more tech support than what we deal with today in terms of actually how we run our software business. So yeah. From the beginning, was the plan always at some point to build a tech company, to build a software platform? That's such a good question. So I went into software engineering and I knew tech was, you know, the thing I loved. And I took that detour after university to the health space. And I was like, you know, like I'm kind of throughout the baby with the bathwater, right? Because I don't want to work on Wall Street in tech. And I just turned my back on that. 
But definitely, even when I was doing the healthy eating, I was building software for like a menu planner with like drag and drop menu planning and things. So there was definitely a part of me that wanted to use my software side more. So when I had the opportunity where people were telling me what they wanted uh, and listening to that audience saying, hey, we want to use that too. That's when I was like, yes, okay. It felt like a full circle of all of our expertise coming together with the marketing side, with the course side, and also with the software side. Very cool. And if I'm hearing it, it's almost, we were trying to build a software company, but we could not get to where we wanted to go without doing this. So you had this pain and the thought process was, if we have this pain, I know there's other people that also have this same exact pain. Did you pre-test that? Did you pre-sell that with that as well? And how did you go about doing that? Yeah. So for Access Ally, we had four paying beta clients, basically. So we we just had four people who are a little bit tech savvy uh, because the first version was not super polished. It didn't have tons of usability of testing on the user end of actual like setup and the back end of it. So yeah, we had four people who signed up to be beta testers. And then we ended up selling it after, you know, getting their feedback, improving it and selling it as, you know, a regular full price software as a service, essentially. And interestingly enough, one of those four beta people um, now works for Access Ally. So she joined our team full time as our head of education. And yeah, a lot of those early people are still in our world and they're like using the software, either recommending it or maybe they build websites for clients and things too. What was the biggest hurdle or challenge, I should say, transitioning from a services-based business to a software-based business? I would say the biggest hurdle was shifting how we think about things. So we were definitely a lot in the launch model and the like big promotion side of things where we would do a lot of ramp up towards a big campaign or promo and then close it down. Kind of what we were talking about, like more cohort based, right? And for software, it's a completely different buying cycle. So people might be looking for something and maybe they're doing a lot of research with other tools. So they need a little bit more time to decide. They're not just going to impulse buy software because, you know, there's a specific date of something like a bonus webinar or something like that. So just thinking about our marketing in a completely different way where we have to be more clear about what the software does, what it doesn't do, how it compares to our competitors, which again, with online courses, people are not necessarily going to compare what you have with other courses on the topic. They're probably just going to buy because they like you and they think you can help them with something versus software where it's like, oh, well, there's these, you know, five or 10 different other options. I should really do my research before I buy. So that was also definitely a, a challenge to kind of adapt to a slightly different way of marketing and explaining what we can do for people. What did you do specifically to get over that? I think a lot of it was thinking through how we're different and also who we're for. So, I mean, that's sort of basic marketing (laughs) essentially, but just the way that we can do that and have that available for people all the time. So we do have uh, discovery calls so people can get on the phone with us and just get a demo, um, have their questions answered. So that's not something that we did when we had courses necessarily, Um, but we did consulting. Yes, uh, people could get on a call with me, but again, it was so specific and tailored versus this is a software solution that has to work for multiple people. So it's not necessarily going to change for each client, but being able to meet the client where they're at and what they're trying to accomplish is something that we try to do too. And then the other piece I would say in terms of the challenge is 
investing a lot more on the development side. So with consulting or a course, you know, I was generally the one delivering, but switching into delivery that software means you have to invest in your development team. You have to invest in support as well. And also just testing and making sure everything is really stable because you never want anything to happen for your clients when they're in a launch or they're doing something for their business. So that's also been a big shift and something that I am really happy that I had suffer experience for because that's not something that necessarily comes easy. You have to have the experience to know this could cause issues for clients. So let's like hold back our release and improve, fix issues and that kind of thing. Well, and, and actually as a follow-up question to that is more of just kind of a thought exercise in general. 25-year-old Natalie, you pick up as a mentee, and she's going to make this transition from a services business to a software business. How would you coach her to do that? Yeah, I would say, um, let's see, what would I start with? I would say switching into more of an investment mindset on the team side is a huge one because... Uh, I was used to, or, you know, that younger Natalie's maybe is used to hiring, you know, a virtual assistant here and there, but really focusing on hiring people full-time that are going to grow with the company and be an investment to the company, if you will, is probably what's helped us grow the most. And so I, I would say that's a really big mindset shift. Um, you know, same goes for, you know, support people, developers. Um, we have a project manager. We have the head of education that I talked about. And uh, marketing side too, but I still do a lot of the marketing ourselves. So I feel like that switch on, on the, the people side, I think would be a biggest one. It's so interesting that you say that because, so I spent my whole life in tech on the SaaS and software side for the most part. The majority of it of my career has been spent on there. When I came over to the services side, I had never worked with the VA before. So I didn't even think it was possible. I'm trying to get interns. And I was like, why are you not just using a, a VA for this? And then I used the VA for the first time. I was like, wow, I didn't know this whole world even existed. This is amazing. Did you find that to be an advantage in, in how you can work with contractors going into this? Yeah, I mean, definitely that's how we bootstrapped, right? So we're not VC funded or anything. So we definitely bootstrapped through being able to hire contractors when we needed them and smaller hours until we were able to afford more and ramp up and then hire full-time people. And yeah, I think there's a lot of advantage and we still do sometimes hire a copywriter or hire someone for like a super specific technical thing. And so that gives us a little bit more of that nimbleness and flexibility that, that we can actually try different things and it doesn't break the bank, right? So we're able to experiment a little bit more and um, get the support that we need. And sometimes it's even more specialized, right? So if you're hiring someone that's for a long-term role, like they might need to on-ramp a lot. But if somebody comes in and they have an expertise already on this topic, then that can also fast-track things too. So you were able to use contractors and VAs and things like that in order to maintain costs that are at a reasonable level to make being a bootstrapped SaaS company on, like doable. Why bootstrapped? Why not raise capital? I think really at the time, it wasn't even on my mind. You know, it was just more like, well, this is just the organic way things are evolving and our, you know, services and courses and stuff were making so much money that we didn't need to get extra funding. And, you know, I've learned a lot more 
over the years about everything as things have evolved and I've been in this space a little bit longer. And I think there's also something interesting about WordPress specifically because I've had people approach to purchase the company and all of that too. And sometimes WordPress scares them off because it's an open source marketplace and uh, you know open source software. And so there's some hesitations, I think, around that too. So in a way, I feel like it's probably better that we're bootstrapped and that we're just doing things our way and figuring it out as we go because I feel like We've come at things in a a very circular way, if that makes sense. And when I talk to a lot of other WordPress-based businesses, you know, they tend to be either charging one-off or maybe it's an annual fee, but they're really charging a lot less versus us where we came in at the premium side. And I think that is just from like our own experience of being in business before. So I feel like if we would have come in with VC money, I'm not sure how it would have worked necessarily if we would have had to charge more or I don't know. It's like an interesting question. (laughs) What are the advantages to being bootstrapped? I think some of the advantages really are we get to do what we want to do, which I know seems a little bit silly, but we recently moved to a four-day work week with our company. And that means we actually shut down support on Fridays for the whole team. Like everybody's off at the same time. I don't know necessarily that a VC-backed company would let you do that or, uh, you know, what what people would say to that. So it's sort of an experiment to see like, how can we take care of our people and ourselves so that this is sustainable long-term? The focus with being uh, bootstrapped is not necessarily on the biggest, fastest growth so that we can get to an exit. To us, it's more about having a sustainable lifestyle. So we moved to a farm in 2020. Um, and so we have a little bit more work-life balance. We're able to you know, keep the business in a good, healthy place, but also we don't have crazy targets that we're always trying to reach and double and do all these things. Like we just feel good with the work we're doing. We're helping our customers with their goals. And then our team also has a really good life too. So I think those are like my, in my perspective, what bootstrapping really benefits from. If you're advising somebody right now, then they've they're thinking about let's say they've got a initial product that's up and they could raise capital or they could continue to bootstrap and they've got services revenue that can keep them afloat for a little bit. What do they need to know? And I would say I don't know if this is necessarily the cons, but what are the things that they need to know going into that in running a bootstrap company? What are those things that you don't want to be surprised by this? This is a challenge. One of the things that's allowed us to be bootstrapped for this long is that we're very risk averse with with our money. So I feel like we have a really good cushion in the bank, you know, where we're ready if ever something were to change, there's a slowdown or market conditions change or whatnot, we can keep going for a really long time. And I think that's something you have to be prepared to do if you're bootstrapped because you don't have, you know, any backups, you don't have any other ways to like raise money all of a sudden when you really need it, which most of the time people don't want to give you money if you really need it. They want to give you money before mm-hmm. you need it. So I think that would be something to think about is how can you be very frugal essentially, right? When you're building your business so that you have this cushion in place and you know what your runway looks like. And then also being able to project your revenue so we can predict month to month and year to year how much we're going to make based on how many customers we have. And that's the benefit of, you know, SaaS and recurring revenue. So just being able to look at those numbers, be very conscious and also very realistic with them so that you're not over hiring or over investing, if you will, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. And what I'm hearing you say is you have to have capital. It's going to be really, really, really challenging if you don't have 
probably more money in the bank than a typical company would need. Is that correct? That's pretty much how I see it. And I think, you know, I haven't been inside of a lot of other people's businesses and how they run things. But to me, that's really important. You know, with any product, you it takes longer than you think to get product market fit and to get a good base of customers where it's really sustainable and growing and all of that. So bootstrapping is no different. And I feel like software as a service is probably harder than an actual service because you're not charging usually as high of a fee. So you need a lot of customers to really add up to those monthly revenues that you need to keep a team going and all of that. So that's how I would look at it too. Do you have a number in mind? How many months of expenses? How many months of cash in the bank? Yeah. So I think six months is probably pretty good. I mean, it depends on the business too and how stable it's been and all of that. If you're still ramping up, it might be a little bit even more than that. It also depends how big the team is and there's so many, so many things. But yeah, I would say six months is probably a good amount. I know some people are like, no, two months is enough. Um, I've definitely seen that. And it just depends. Like if it's super stable, then yes, you could probably get away with two months. But to me, like I said, we're very risk averse and we really care about our team and we would never want to just have to let people go because we couldn't afford it. So that's how we do things. This is going to switch gears a little bit here. I think that's such good advice and really starting any business because you just so hard to predict and especially in the early stages. A question I'm curious about is you've successfully ran a business with your husband now for a long time. What advice do you have for people that are thinking about this or are in this? And I guess uh, as well, what are the challenges of that? Yes. So yeah, being in business with your partner (laughs) is definitely challenging, uh, but also has so many great benefits. So I would say uh, what has helped us the most is having very clearly defined roles in the company. And in the beginning, we overlapped a little bit too much where we were sort of both making decisions about everything together which is not necessarily bad, but once we delineated like, okay, you can make the more strategic marketing decisions, you can make more of the tech decisions. And that for us was really helpful. And then even just with hiring and stuff, before we both used to do all the hiring, all the interviews, everything together, and we realized, no, like you need to have your separate thing, I will do my separate thing. And that has really made a huge difference in not stepping on each other's toes, not having too many arguments. And a lot of times, you know, we we trust each other, right? Like we know that we're going to make the right decision. So we don't need to double up on time for the work that needs to be done or the decisions that need to be made. So those would be just very clear roles. The other thing I would say is what we call the why or the because rule. Because if you're telling someone to do something, so I might say, you know, hey, can you send this email or fix this thing to my husband, it feels like I'm ordering him around, which is not very good. And the same for him. He might be like, hey, like I need you to review this thing or whatnot. And if you say because, and then you explain the reason, it gives the context and it takes away the pushiness of it essentially. And it's just like, oh, this is going to help me do X, Y, Z better, or this is for this vendor or for this whatnot, right? So that really helps us not get into any arguments. Um, And then the other thing we did like maybe a year and a half ago and has really helped our marriage a lot is that we hired a product manager. And what she does is she is the advocate for our customers and uh, making sure that we're working on the right features. And so before I was the advocate for our customers and my husband was the advocate for the software. And so we would sometimes clash about this is not going to be a good long term because we have to maintain this or it might cause other issues. And I'd be like, but people are really asking for it. So now I have someone else who's (laughs) the person advocating for customers and I get to just weigh in if it's needed, but I don't need to weigh into every single feature and every single way that we're going to implement things. Yeah. 
That makes total sense. I mean, I like that uh, the why because there's probably good advice in general for any employee, but I can see how it'd be amplified um, <laughs> with a spouse. That is for sure. A question that I have as well is, do you have guide rails not at work? Meaning, is there like, I guess boundaries would be the word, but at this point, like we're not talking about work or is our, because as an entrepreneur, it's nearly impossible to fully shut it off. I don't know that you can, but I'm curious. And if you've got kind of guide rails or rules around that. Yeah. So when we first started working together, we would talk about business all the time and we had no guardrails, no boundaries. And then we started putting boundaries around weekends and definitely more evenings. So definitely now when our kids come home from school, we don't talk about work as much. Every now and then I'll be like, hey, sorry, can I just talk about business for a minute? And then we, we just go through that and then shut that down after we're done and move on to more normal conversations. Uh, but in the beginning, we definitely overdid the business talk and we were both so excited about it. And, you know, we didn't have kids and that was our main thing that we did. But I feel so much better now that we have more of a no weekend talk, talk about work. And if we do, we just say, hey, do you mind if I talk about work for a minute? And after that, we can just move on and not have it keep lingering, if that makes sense. And that that really helps for sure. So you brought up another point, and I would love to touch on here a little bit. So work-life balance, as you mentioned, is very important to you. And you've created these clear guide rules on when to shut it off. And because I think a lot of people, I think there's a, a number of people that want to work with their partner, but don't know how to do that. And I think that's excellent advice. So- you both purchased a walk us through it. You purchased a farm and permaculture, correct? What, what yes. okay, two things. What is permaculture? And what I'm super curious about the farm in particular is what have you learned from that? What have you learned from maintaining growing a farm? How has that impacted your business? Yes. So, okay, permaculture is sort of a design principle that is about permanent agriculture. That's the idea behind it, where instead of, you know, annual plants where you're constantly, you know, tilling and planting new things all the time, the idea is to establish systems that are more long-term, like maybe it's agroforestry, which is like planting trees along with other crops or having animals in pasture between trees and things like that. So you can have more of that long-term integrated vibe, if you will. It's sort of the whole regenerative way of growing more food and things like that. So there's a lot more to permaculture, but it's about designing all the pieces so they work together. And it's more of a, a good system that regenerates itself as opposed to depleting itself year after year. The reason we decided to move to a farm, it's a 17 acre farm. We have dairy sheep, we have chickens and ducks. Yeah, we have you know a big greenhouse. We grow all kinds of veggies and Part of that was, uh, you know, we wanted to be able to grow more food for our kids and also spend less time on the screen and on the computer. So we knew that being outside, planting trees or doing all these things, you know, it would keep us more balanced. And we've learned so much <laughs> from this. So first of all, we're not farmers. We're, we didn't come from that background. Uh, we've been learning from books and YouTube videos and just, you know, talking to local people who have farms and just soaking up as much as we can. And there's definitely been a lot of trial and error. So we got dairy sheep in the first year that we moved here, I had never milked an animal before. <laughs> and so really figuring out how to do that. We milked by hand for the first year and then we got a milking machine after that. And yeah, I think some of the learnings are uh, really about not, I would say one of the biggest learnings is really around 
giving it the time that it needs and not rushing it. And I think that's something we can definitely take back into our business. So we've had times where we planted, you know, when we first moved, we're like, okay, we're going to plant some trees. It'll be great. You know, you got to plant them early because it takes a long time for them to bear fruit. And we planted them kind of in the wrong spot. A lot of them died. And so we rushed that too much, right? And so going back into our business, what are we doing that we're rushing that we need to take our time on and make really awesome before we release it or, you know, make that the thing? So those are some of the definitely learnings where we're excited and maybe we don't quite know what we're doing. <laughs> so they're, you know, taking our time to do to our research and plan before we do things, I think is really important. That's so cool. I, I think that's such good advice, too, on there are so many things where you rush. Uh, I did it the other day. I put up a landing page and because I wanted to get it up and and look at and I just looked at it. I was like, this sucks. <laughs> like, this is not good. Uh, so I took it down and redid it. But there are sometimes you're just such in a hurry to just want to get it up there, get it out there. And I do believe in MVP, minimum, build a minimum viable product and then iterate. I do that in almost everything I do. But sometimes you got to look at it and say, this sucks. Um, so I think that's excellent. Last question I have for you, Natalie, is if you can have a conversation with your younger self, age totally up to you, what would that conversation be and what advice would you give them? Yeah, I would probably go, you know, to my 12, 13 year old geeky self and say that you will figure things out as you try them. Because I think that, you know, back then I thought I had to have all the answers and have everything figured out and know exactly what I was going to do for the rest of my life and know what my career was going to be and all of these things. And I feel like I knew tech was part of it, but I would say I never would have gotten to where I am today if I didn't just try something and start on the path and just take the next step as it showed up because it's not like I could have planned this, right? It's not like this was even a career option back in the day to become a creator or a consultant that wasn't on my radar. And then starting a software company, yes, that was sort of on the radar, but I couldn't have started it from scratch out of school. So I think that's really what I would tell my, my younger self. Out of just pure coincidence, I'm reading Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, which is a great book. And this quote I read today, it just hit me so hard. And it was essentially when you're looking at writing, you got to think about it like a painter and a painter starts in a corner of the canvas, puts something up there, doesn't like it, whites it out, does it again, does it again. So each time they know what it isn't until the time that they run into the paint it and they know exactly what it is. And I think the advice that you just mentioned is you've got to get out there and do it. And then you'll figure out, you'll be able to at least figure out what it isn't so you could figure out what it is. And I, your career path had that pure evolution to it. And I think people are going to get a ton out of it. So Natalie, thanks for coming on the show today. This has been excellent. Yeah, thanks for having me, Callan. This is awesome. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed Natalie and I's conversation. Like I said in the beginning, I learned so much from this episode and just found myself taking tons of notes. If you want to connect with Natalie, you can find her on LinkedIn in the show notes. Also, if you like this episode, you can find me on LinkedIn to let me know. And if you really want to support the show, our review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is very much appreciated. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week.